All right, well, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. As we approach God's word this morning, may we approach it like um, we believe that our God is our Father, and as a loving Father speaks to his children and calls them to listen. What blesses that child? What blesses that child is to go, Dad, I know you love me, and so because you love me and you're speaking right now, I'm going to be listening. God, um, would you help us this morning to receive your word like that? God, would you help us to receive like a little child, to believe that you're not out to get us, that you're not out to suppress us, that you're not out to harm us, but you love us as a father, and as a father loves to speak to his kids, so you love to speak to us through your word. And so may we receive it like that this morning, God. Give us soft, childlike hearts to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we all struggle with relationships at times. I don't know about you, but, you know, that's been part of my journey as a child, a teenager, as an adult. And sometimes it's marriage, sometimes it's parenting, sometimes it's roommates, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's coworkers. And sometimes it's hard to pin down, why is it that there's a point of tension here in this relationship right now? I feel it, but I can't quite figure out why it is. I think one diagnostic that's not perfect, but I think can be really helpful for us to consider is this. One key question that can kind of help us boil it down. Do I trust this person? Do I trust this person? Does this person trust me? If there's some relational angst in your life, maybe just start there and see what you come up with. Be really self-reflective. Does this person trust me? Do I trust them? Can you count on me? Do you believe in me? Do you have confidence in me? Do you trust me? How is trust going in our relationship? Do you trust that your friend is not gossiping about you? Do they trust that you're not doing that to them? Do you trust that your husband will defend you as a wife? Do you trust that your wife is supportive of your leadership of her husband's? Do you trust that your roommate's not stealing money from you? Does your roommate believe that you have their best interest in mind? Do you trust that your kids are going to make the right choice? Do your kids believe that you're seeking their blessing and you're not out to get them? See, if the answer is no to some of those questions, we shouldn't despair. It's not time to despair, but it, it may be time that we need to invest a little more work in that relationship, in that area, at the level of trust. So the point is this that we're going to see this morning. High trust builds relationships, and a lack of trust destroys relationships. High trust builds relationship. A lack of trust destroys relationships. Let me tell you a story about this from my life. When um, our oldest, Taylor, 15 and a half now, when he was born, Kim and I, we pulled a serious bonehead move, and we decided to get a six-week-old puppy when, he was about, when Taylor was about six weeks old. We'd never had this baby creature in our house before, 
and we'd never had this puppy creature in our house before. And so, hey, why not do it all at the same time, right? Sounds like wisdom, huh? Probably more a reflection of youthful arrogance. Well, we found out quickly that it's like having twins, all right? And you got to keep an eye on both baby and puppy at all times. Puppy needs to go outside. He's going to pee in the house. He's going to chew something up. He's going to chew the baby up, right? Um, and you never know what kind of curveballs the baby's going to throw at you, right? So at this stage in our parenting, uh, Kim worked a part-time job on Fridays, and I was working at a church, and I took my day off on Fridays. So that meant that my first Friday of baby and puppy, neither of which I had any experience with, was coming, and I was dreading that day. Well, the day came, Kim kisses me goodbye, goes off to work, and I have this sense of doom that just descends on me, right? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I do not know what I'm doing. And so she comes home that day, and I remember, it's, you know how we have those moments that are very poignant in your life, and you just have a visual picture that's attached to that memory, you can still see it. I can still see myself, like, sitting on the floor, and just, like, just trying to be manly, but the tears were so close. They were just, so, I was just so overwhelmed. I didn't know what the heck. I, was, I look back at that. You know, now four kids, and we've had a dog for 15 years, and just like, what was I so worked up about? But like, that was my, that was my perception at the moment. I didn't know what I was doing, right? So overwhelmed. Well, things got better, and, and time moved on, and, the, and Taylor grew up, and the, the dog also grew up. And about nine months later, we didn't have a pup anymore. We had a 110-pound German Shepherd, Okay. And unfortunately, the dog started to get a little bit weird and kind of nervous. And, you know, especially a big dog like that, a, a nervous dog is not a good dog. And I didn't really know what, again, like we never owned a dog before. We didn't really know what we were doing. We just liked this breed and wanted to give it a shot. And he started to growl once in a while, just at weird times. Not like super aggressive or anything, but just, just little things, just a quick, kind of a quick growl. And we just kind of ignored it. And, and one day my sister went to pet him and he, like, barked really aggressive and snapped at her. And immediately I had that sinking feeling like, man, I raised this dog from a puppy, but we're going to have to get rid of this dog. Right? The days with this dog are drawn to a close. We had to give him away. Why? Because trust was being eroded. Trust was broken. I can't have in the back of my mind in the least like, I wonder what this dog's going to do. Like, not with a dog that big, not with little kids in the house, their friends coming over, or anybody for that matter, right? Like, it's like having a loaded gun in the house with a dog like that that you can't trust. So trust was broken with our dog, and the relationship needs to be over with the dog. See, trust is the foundation of all healthy relationships. Well, in Exodus 16, we're going to see today that God is going to bring his people to a place where he wants to instill deep father-child-like trust in his people. Because here's the deal. God said already to, to his people, you are my treasured possession. I love you. I'm going to bend over backwards to save you. And so I want us to have a great relationship, but we can't have a great relationship unless you're going to trust me. The, the, the word that the Bible uses quite often that's synonymous with this is faith. You can't have a relationship with me unless you have deep faith in me, meaning deep trust in me. 
So God is going to ask his people that we're going to see in Exodus 16, do you trust me? Do you really trust me? And if so, don't just nod your head yes, but I want you to live like it. I can't allow you to be just people of, walk, uh, of talk and no walk. I can't have you people who just hear the word but don't do the word. We've got to be hearers and doers. So if you say you trust me, it needs to look like something in your life, and I'm going to set you up with that opportunity here, God says in Exodus 16. That's what we're going to see in our text for today. So Exodus 16, if, if you're looking at it, it's pretty long. And so I'm just going to simply tell you the story of it, and then we're going to draw out specific texts for us to look at. So, all right, so every text needs a context. So what's the context? Really quick. If you've been here, you kind of know it, but let's just review it. So God's people suffering in slavery in Egypt, and he did this amazing rescue, right? Parts the Red Sea, judges his enemies, his wrath poured out on his enemies, and he saves his people. So God's people were suffering, and then God provided salvation. And then last week, Scott preached a great sermon about how his people were leaving Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they happen to be really thirsty. There's no water, and they're struggling, and they cry out to God for salvation. Save us from dying of thirst. And he responds to them, and he saves them. So we had suffering and salvation, round one. Suffering salvation with the, with the water, round two. And now today we get to see round three. God's people are suffering and God saves through his provision. God's people are suffering and he saves through his provision. And today the issue is not slavery in Egypt or lack of water. Today the issue is food. Food. There's nothing to eat. So again, God's people are leaving Egypt, headed to the promised land that God promised Abraham, and that's coming to pass. You're going to have a land, and I'm going to dwell with you there. You're going to be my people in this land, this place. I'm going to have my presence with you, and you're going to have a mission. And that's coming to pass. They're marching that direction. But there's a problem. There's no food. All right? And so look at, look at verse 2 of chapter 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they grumbled. They complained, all right, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. That's kind of an awkward Bible way of saying, I wish we just would have died in Egypt, because this is horrible. Well, why would they say that? Well, here's why. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's quite an accusation. In light of what they've just been through, think of how outlandish that is, right? This is only about six weeks after God parts the Red Sea. The, the, The prototypical picture of Old Testament salvation. They just experienced it six weeks ago, and now the claim is God is just trying to kill us. Grumbling again against Moses and God. Slavery in Egypt was better than this. Let's just go back there. Like, can you feel how crazy that is? Let's gloss over this text. Place yourself in this text. 
And, and here's the thing, if you're reflective, it would not be unjust for God in the least to simply smite his people right here and wipe them off the face of the earth in his judgment. That would not be unjust on his part. This is a gross, grievous sin against God, and sin demands justice. God doesn't do it. Think about this, though. Like, is this really what the story of the Bible, like, just try to place yourself there and how crazy this is. Like, God did all of this. He did all of this with Moses in the burning bush, and you're going to go and you talk to Pharaoh, and there's going to be all these plagues and flies and gnats, and all the livestock are dead, and the hail, and the blood over the doorpost. And I'm going to bring you out by this massive miracle, by trusting me in faith. And then they're going to come track you down, and I'm going to fight for you. you just, all you got to do is close your mouth and, and be still, right? And you're going to see the, the judgment of God fall on his enemies. And then you're going to pass through on dry ground. The water's going to crash, and you're going to be safe, and it's going to be all good. And then you're going to be in the wilderness, and I'm going to do this miracle of water. And then this is what they're thinking. Well, I guess that must be the end of the story. In Exodus 16, God brought us out here just to kill us. Right? Isn't that weird? Is that, really, is that really square with what you've seen in your just near recent history of what God has done in your life? That his agenda is to kill you? Does that really square with what we've seen about God in, in his book, right? But see, God's people are faithless, and beware that we judge them and not, not look to our own hearts, right? He would have been right to judge them with his wrath. But man, we've got mercy. This, Exodus 16, if you see anything today, see mercy jumping off these pages. This is round three. And God wants to test his people again and just, in his patience, instill what's good for them. Learning to trust God. Learning to trust God. Look, look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, like, take note, check it out, behold, look, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. It could have said, I'm about to rain fire on these people because they're so faithless. Look at how much mercy is in verse 4. But you'll miss it if you're not thinking about it. They just got done whining for round three of showing how faithless they are. And he says, you know what, I'm going to still, these are my people, my treasure possession. I'm going to show them mercy. Like, don't ever say that the Old Testament is all about judgment and wrath and that whole narrative in the New Testament's like nice Jesus in the Old Testament. No, this is nice Jesus. Verse 4. This is nice God. This is gracious God, merciful God. Bread from heaven. Look at it. Verse 4. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? That I may test them. What's the test? Here it is, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, what's that got to do with trust? Zach, you already told me that this is all about trust. Well, think about it. Whether they will walk in my law or not. I'm going to see. That's all about trust. Because if God speaks and you don't trust him, there's no way you're going to walk in what he says, right? But if God speaks and you say, you know what, God? I think that you love me. I think you know what's best for me. I trust you. Makes sense that I would do what you say, right? That's a trust issue. That's a faith issue. So he's testing them to see if they will trust him. 
whether they're going to walk in his law, if they have trust or belief or faith in the fact that God loves them, then they will do what he says. So what happens next is really cool. Look at verse 5. On the sixth, sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord. So check it out. They're going to know something. At evening you're going to know something. You're going to know that, what does it say? That it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like it was just six weeks ago. I don't know how you could forget. Evidently, by the way, you're acting, you're forgetting. So I'm going to give you something again to help you remember and know that I am the Lord. See that there? You shall know that, I, that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so you're going to know that. They don't know how they're going to know, but he just says you're going to know. Verse 7, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So God says two things. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. Through my provision of you, bread raining down from heaven, you're going to know that I'm the Lord, and you're going to know that I'm glorious. You're going to know that I'm God, and you're going to see me as glorious. Now, if you've been listening through Exodus up to this point, you see that as a theme. He told that to Pharaoh. You're going to know that I'm the Lord, and I raised you up so that the whole earth could know that I am God and that I am glorious. And he says it again here to his people. That's God's agenda. Know me and see, see my glory. And we see that again here through how God is going to call his people to trust him. So check it out. The story of this text is that at nighttime, God provides these birds called quail to come, and they're captured by the people, so they have meat to eat. And in the morning, Manna comes down. That's what the people called it. It's like this bread-like substance that's sweet like honey, the Bible says, for them to eat. So they have meat at night and bread in the morning. And, and check it out. They don't have to work. Like you and I have to work. We have to get a paycheck. We have to go to the store and buy a loaf of bread. They don't have to do any of that. They just have to walk out of their tent. In the morning, there's food for us. Just provide it straight up. No working, just trusting. God graciously provides for his people. But here's the kicker. This is the one that really tests the, tr the whole trust issue. I want you to pay attention to how he asks his people to relate to this provision of food. Asks the people how to relate to this provision of food. God really wants his people to trust him. Not trust in themselves, but simply cast themselves on his mercy and grace and trust him that they're not going to die of hunger, that they're not going to starve to death. So here's what God says, in essence, to them as they relate to this food. Here's what he says. He says, don't hoard it. Don't hoard this food that I will provide. Look at verse 19. I think this is the linchpin verse of this whole text, and it's so easy to miss because it sounds so normal. Look at verse Verse 19. And Moses said to them, after the bread has come down and God's provided all this food, you're not going to die of hunger, let no one leave any of it over until morning. So what does this mean? It means no doggy bags. No, no boxes to take it home. No planning to have a little extra for lunch tomorrow. Just take enough for one day, that's all. 
just one day. Be satisfied with your daily portion. Why? Because God says, I want you to trust me. Trust me for tomorrow. Don't, don't have control issues with tomorrow. Reflected in hoarding it all up, having a doggy bag, got to save more for lunch tomorrow. I don't know if lunch tomorrow's going to be there. So I got I to I control that, that angst. I got to control that anxiety. God says, don't do it. Just enough for one day. Do you trust that I will walk with you day by day by day and provide for you? If so, don't just people who hear be people who um, do as well. Don't just nod your head yes and then don't live like it. No, you got to live like it. You got to act like it. So here's how I want you to act like it. Don't hoard your food. Verse 19. No one leave any of it over till the morning. Don't hoard your food. Why? Because I will provide. You have to trust me that I will provide. You don't need to try and provide for yourself. I'll take care of it. Don't try to control the situation. Cast yourself upon my mercy. So that's the essence of chapter 16 of Exodus. This is what God wants to instill in the heart of his people. That's the big action point for us to land on today. Do you see what God's up to here? Does it, does, it, does it remind you of anything? One day Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, I would love to. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our monthly bread. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. How about our weekly bread? Nope. When we pray to God, it's our daily bread. The assumption is we're abiding with Christ so deeply that we don't forget about him on a day-to-day basis because we need him so much on a day-to-day basis. See, praying for daily provision, that's, that's God's will for us. What does that imply? It implies that we're going to be walking with God and trusting him daily. We're not just trusting him once a week, like, God, I'll, I'll show up for an hour on Sunday and trust you then, and then I'll, I'll check my trust box for the week. That's not how the Lord wants to relate to us. Or maybe just once a month when things are really hard, then I'll cry out to you. But when things are really easy, then, dude, I got it. I'm I'm good. So don't bother me, God, when I'm good, because clearly I got this. I don't need you. God says you're sadly misinformed. That's not how you're going to be blessed. That's not how I'm going to be glorified. It's a daily deal. Every day, we come to him every day, and that daily repetition shows what? It shows I'm needy. And I have to look outside myself to satisfy these needs that I have. I'm not trusting in myself to meet my own needs. Every day we come to a father like a little child and say to him, I have needs. It's like that little kid who maybe 18 months, two years old, who can sort of manage and they can communicate pretty clearly with you. Like they get up in the morning and they know enough to communicate, man, I'm hungry. Will you feed me? 
but I don't have enough skill to like pour the milk in my own cereal bowl. So you got to hook me up. The child looks at you with those pleading eyes like, today's the day. I got to eat again today. So are you going to provide? Right? And I can't, I can't manage that gallon by myself. Right? That's a picture of daily dependence. And that's why Jesus calls us to pray daily for our provision. Daily for bread. It's not weekly, monthly. No, no. I, I need to be in such a position of faith and trust and on that edge of faith where if you don't show up, God, I'm sunk. That I have to go daily. Every single day I'm struck in the face with my inadequacy and my lack of ability to handle the situation on my own. That's where God wants you. If you feel like you're in crisis, that may be your greatest opportunity to experience God. Because at least then you know that you're dependent. At least then you know you have needs and they're right up in your face. And then what you're going to do? Well, you can freak out and downward spiral and figure out a way to anesthetize that through worldliness. Or you can go to your father and do what he says and say, today's the day. I need you again today. I need you again today. I need you again today. I can't manage this thing. I need you again today. That's what God wanted from his people then. That's what he wants now. Don't hoard up stuff. Your hoarding shows that you don't trust me. Your hoarding lures you into thinking that you're in control when you're not. That's not how you're going to know me, right? If you want to know me, like I said, verse 6, remember 6 and 7? You're going to know me and you want to see me as glorious? You're going to know me and see me as glorious at the deepest level when you confess your need to me and you see me show up and meet that need and then I'm going to get glory because you're going to want to worship me as your providing father and you're going to get the joy of having communion with him as you daily abide with him. So the question is this, do you trust me? Exodus 16, he says to his people, do you trust me? Don't hoard it. Depend on me. Well, the rest of the story of chapter 16 is that we see again, round three, tragically, God's people, they fail again. They fail again. They fail to trust God. And God rebukes them, but he's still merciful. He spares them from his wrath. He's full of steadfast love and patience and kindness. Even when his people live in opposition to him. So, I hope it's probably pretty obvious that I would imagine every single one of us in this room can relate to Exodus 16 on some level, right? Like where are we tempted to hoard because we don't believe that God will provide? Where are we tempted to ramp up the control and the anxiety that comes with it because we don't trust that God's going to provide daily? I think in this culture, an easy one for Americans, especially Madisonians, not everyone, but a lot of people, most people in this room probably, is no matter what you make, I'm not talking an amount of money, but it is our money. It's our money. And and hear me, I, I think it's wise to be wise with money. So if you're wise with your money, it makes sense that you would have a savings account, right? But God forbid that we trust that savings account over and against God or the 401k or the investments of some other kind. 
And here's the question that we can ask ourselves like God asked his people in Exodus 16. I think he wants to ask us this morning in reference to our money. If it's taken away, or maybe not even all the way taken away, maybe your money's just threatened, just threatened a little bit, what happens to you? Like when you get that income tax return and you're not getting any back, in fact, you're paying, right? What happens to your heart? If it's threatened, do we, do we shrivel up in a nervous breakdown? Are we emotionally wrecked? And that says a lot about what we trust in, right? Our emotions are tied to the things that we're trusting in. So if I'm wrecked because I got to pay a couple grand in my taxes, what does that say about what I'm trusting? Maybe for, you know, Jesus came to this guy who the Bible calls the rich young ruler, and he said to him, you know what you need? You need to give it all away. Now, I don't know what what Jesus would say to you. You need to pray and ask him what you would do. But let's just say what you need to do is not necessarily give it all away, but just lean in the direction of more radical generosity, okay? Let's just say that's the case. What happens to your heart at just like the simple suggestion of that? Like right now, in this moment. Like our, 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 our elders, we just had a beautiful elders retreat where we're strengthening our relationships and having vision for the future. And I feel like our church is poised in some ways to be healthier than ever, more beautiful than ever, more on mission than ever. And we're dreaming about maybe a couple extra part-time staff positions coming up in the new budget year, June 1st. And what if the call is, man, we would love to see everybody in the Vine family, if you're a member here, just kind of step our game up with giving and be generous so, that, so we can continue to do what we're calling God to do. Like even right now in this moment, as you hear me say that, what, what's going on in your heart? It's like, uh-oh. Like he's going to ask me to give and I don't want to. So then I feel guilty and then I feel paralyzed because I'm caught between the guilt and I, what I know is right and I'm like all this bound up mess of emotions, right? You know what I mean? It all happens instantly in reference to our idolatry sometimes. If I'm tempted to hoard my money and not be generous, could it be that I'm trusting money more than God? There's a ton of other things. And we can hoard relationships because we trust in human relationships more than God. We can hoard, we can do anything. There's so many things. But ask yourself this week, ask yourself today, ask your spouse or trusted brother or sister or a roommate or or whatever, someone that knows you, process this in community. Where am I tempted to trust something other than God, to not go to him daily, to not want to live on the edge of daily dependence and manage my life so it's all good and I don't really need him anymore, but I'll maybe just check in when there's a crisis. That's not Christianity. Christianity is we live on that edge of faith like they were living on the edge of faith. All they're doing is going, okay, you saved us and now you've told us to go to the promised land and so daily we don't even know what we're doing. Unless you show up and provide, like we're just out in the wilderness. And some of you feel that way right now. That you're in some type of wilderness. But that may be the moment when he shows up most clearly. Don't forsake him. Lean into him daily, daily, daily. And if you're not in some crisis, we're not masochists, okay? But maybe you need to live on that edge of faith such that 
you're actually called to believe God for something, right? Rich Americans don't have to believe God for much because we have woodmans and you have a paycheck and you go get groceries and you're good. No one in this room, as far as I know, is dying of hunger. And you've got a job and a car and you've got a house and, you know, it's not everybody, but that's a lot of people here. And the danger there is you can start to trust those things and not trust God. And it's really foreign to pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Lord, I need daily bread. So this isn't a guilt trip that, hey, get going, you got, you got more to do. It's just to ask you to consider, is there a way that I can live on that edge of trusting faith that I know is going to glorify God and I'm going to know him more and I'm going to get more joy as a result when I see him show up by having to trust him. You don't have to trust God for anything. It's hard to be a Christian. What's that place for you? What's that place for you? Well, let's land the plane right here. If you have a Bible, uh, flip over to John chapter 6. We're going to jump forward in time a few centuries. I want to tell you the story of John chapter 6 as we close here. John 6, 25. So a few, a few centuries after this text, Exodus 16, Jesus with his disciples, and there's a huge crowd that love Jesus, or they think they love Jesus. They think he's pretty cool, at least, because he can do lots of miracles. And as a result, they follow him. And they follow him out where he's with his disciples, and there's a massive group of people. And they're out in a place where they don't have a woodman's to go get groceries. So Jesus says to them, says, hey, what are we going to do? We've got to feed these people. There's probably around 15,000 men, women, and children here. The Bible says 5,000 men, but that just means that there's more women and children. And they say, I don't know. We don't have any food. And he says, well, what do you have? Well, we got five loaves and two fish. Um, And so Jesus says, that's enough. Do you trust me? And he feeds all these people, five loaves and two fish. One of the most amazing things ever in the Bible. It's recorded in all, all four Gospels because it's so amazing. And the crowd that's following him thinks this is pretty cool. We didn't have any food, and all of a sudden here's food, and Jesus did this miracle. And so they're all about him. And the Bible says that, 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 that he knew that they would try and come and make him king by force. And what that means is, Jesus, we don't want you to be who you are. We want you to be a military ruler and give us back our land and overthrow the Romans who are occupying our nation. And he's like... I'm not doing it. You just want me because I can do cool tricks. You don't want my true lordship in your life. And so you know what he does? Right after this goes down, and they're coming to be like, Jesus, 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 you're, you're the cool red carpet celebrity guy. He's like, I'm not going to be your red carpet celebrity, and he just bails. He leaves. It's like, I'm out of here. Well, the next day they find him, and look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, like, listen up, this is as true as it gets. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you saw me feed you yesterday miraculously. That's what he's saying. You're not coming at me me for that, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're just coming at me not because you want to worship me as God, but because you just have a full stomach. That's That's what he means. And he says, here, take note of this. Don't labor for the food that perishes, like food you ate yesterday, 
But here's what you should labor for. The food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do? He, he just told them in, in 27, see, don't do this. Don't labor for food that doesn't satisfy. And so they say in verse 28, okay, so what should we do then to be doing the works of God? Well, Jesus answered them, verse 29, this is the work of God. What's that? That you believe in him. Another translation, it's the exact same thing. Trust in him. The, the word belief in the English language gets so watered down. A better way to think about it biblically, the biblical sense of belief, is trust. Trust. That you trust in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we, that we may see and believe you? Like they just missed out on the, on the feeding of the 5,000, right? Okay, what do you perform? Like, where were they yesterday? See, these people are close to Exodus 16 people, right? And here's, here's what's crazy, is they quote Exodus 16 right here. Like, we missed it yesterday at the feeding of the 5,000, but... I got Exodus 16 on the brain, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That's what they're talking about here. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so, he, so they're saying, I don't know where the disconnect is here, and maybe I'm interpreting it wrong, but they're saying our ancestors, our ancestors believed God and got bread sent down from heaven. So Jesus, can you do something like that? And Jesus says this in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you again, this is as, as true as it gets, so listen up. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, my Father, gives you... So, you want to know Exodus 16? Exodus 16 is my Father. That's what he's saying to them. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See it there in verse 33? But the bread. So what he's saying is, back in Exodus 16, our text for today, that was a form of bread. You called it manna, and you ate it, and it was good, and it satisfied your immediate physical hunger. But this is the bread. This is the bread. That was a form of bread, but I want you to focus on the bread. This is the bread. Why? Because look at the end of verse 33. It gives life to the world. It gives life to the world. And so what do they say? Like, oh, that sounds good. Verse 30, 34, they said to him, so give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You're looking at it. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, or, or better yet, like I said, trusts in me, shall never thirst. So there it is. There's the summary. That's Christianity. Jesus is the provision. Jesus is the bread that comforts the suffering of his people. Jesus is the way that we know and glorify God. See, your greatest need is not, that's what he's saying to these people, he's saying it to us too, your greatest need is not Satisfaction from physical hunger, as, as dire as that may be for some people sometimes in our world. But who cares if you go to hell with a full belly? That's what Jesus is saying. you got to go for that which truly satisfies. 
Don't just think temporal, think eternal. Physical hunger will last, and, and yeah, we don't diminish it, it's painful, but our life, the Bible says, is like a mist, and then eternity. But Jesus says, you want to think about what really matters? Focus on me from this moment on. I am the provision of God, the provision of God. Exodus 16 was a provision of God. I am the provision of God, the bread. Back in the Old Testament, it was bread on the ground in the morning and and meat at night. But today, Jesus says, today, today is the day of salvation from your spiritual hunger. So the question, Exodus 16 people, John 6 people, Madison people, are you spiritually hungry? Jesus is saying to these people and to us today, you can't provide for yourself. You need an external bread. The bread of God doesn't exist in you. You don't manufacture it in yourself. It's external to you, so you need to go and get it. And the way that you get it is by faith. Translation, by trust. By trusting him. Casting yourself on God's provision for you. And what is the essence of God's provision? It's just the gospel. It's, it's the good news that we celebrate every week when we do this bread and, this, and, the, and the cup It's this gospel we preach day in and day out. That is the provision for your spiritual hunger, for your spiritual vitality, for your spiritual blessing. Jesus is the bread of life, and he satisfies. You know how when you're so hungry, maybe you've been on a diet or you're fasting, and you eat that meal, maybe it's just a piece of bread, and it goes down in your stomach, and it's like, oh my gosh, that tastes so good. That's Christianity. It's not, oh, whatever. That's bread, yeah, cool. No, it's like, oh, God, that tastes so good. Thank you for the provision of your son. It tastes so good. Jesus is so good. He's so good. I can't be apathetic about having my hunger satisfied. Just like when I've been fasting for 24 hours and I eat a piece of bread, it tastes so good. Man, when I've been so spiritually dead and malnourished and you come and provide yourself, man, Jesus, it tastes good. But you'll never take a bite unless you trust that it's for your good. And so that's the question for these people and for us. Do you trust Do you trust that God will provide and that he's good? And if so, come to him and live. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Help us by your grace. We need it. We're desperate for it. And where we don't feel desperate, Lord, I pray you would show that to us. May you be glorified and may we be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen.